Hey everyone, this episode of On the Margin is brought to you by Matrixport and Coinbase Prime. You'll hear more about them later, but now, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on, Mark? Ah, thanks, Michael. And I, I apologize to everybody watching for the unshowered version of, of the co-host. Uh, so I, my wife's traveling to see her parents, so I'm mis, you know, Mr. Mom this week. And uh, long story short, I go to drop my son off at carpool this morning, and the woman who drives comes out and says, oh, Caleb's got a, a cold, so I'm, I'm just going to keep him home. Silence. <laughs> Oh, oh! I guess I'll I'll drive. Will okay. Like, uh, I have an eight o'clock podcast. I have to be back for it. But okay, I'll drive and go through the crazy carpool line and and speed through and and blow past a cop on the way home. And but I'm calm now. We're here together. Hey, we're celebrating this amazing, unbelievable DAS event. I know. Uh, it's so great to ago. see you in person. That that's oh, that's. It was. I gotta say, Mark, you might have to close down every single Blockworks conference that we do because I'm in. I'm not I'm sure in. we're ever gonna top that. That was like, you know, it's so funny because I do the content and Julie does the operations, and I always don't want to tread on her toes. I want to keep the sessions. We went 20 minutes over on that last session, and I could have kept yeah. going for another hour. It was yeah. so awesome. Uh, I mean, I like I, said, I really do have to change my name to Dan because clearly <laughs> to be a legend in this space, uh, you have to be named Dan. In fact, it was so, so funny. You know, Yano posted uh, a couple of legends to close. I'm like, there were three of us, so which one's not a legend? Are you saying I'm not a legend? Yeah. I'm not named Dan? So, yeah. But, uh, so I, I posted on Twitter, there's a photo of me and Jason. We're doing like a little fist bump, and I was like, cheers to four years of building. And uh, Jason's uh, fiance, Dana, comments underneath founders one and two. And I was like, Dana, which one in your mind is founder one? And which one is founder two? There you go. Silence. Yep. I haven't heard anything. Uh, and now look, I think it's but, yeah. yeah. All right, so let's dive in. Yeah, let's dive in. Here, let me uh, share my screen here. All right, we got a lot of really interesting stuff to cover this week. Um, now, what I want to start with uh, is in macro land. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, what's going on with Evergrande. So, um, you know, we started to cover this last week, but basically the situation in, uh, with Evergrande looks like it's getting worse. Um, and specifically the fear right now is that there's going to be contagion, right? Uh, both within kind of the real estate development sector, but also, um, you know, China as a whole. And there, there's questions if, if it's going to spread globally. So yield to worst is you can kind of think of it as a measure of, um, the, you know, these are credit spreads that we're looking at and, and general health uh, of the, of the yep. bond ecosystem. Uh, and as you can see, it uh, looks very healthy in the U.S., uh, huge divergence uh, when it comes to China. What are your first thoughts when you're looking at this chart, Mark? Well, a couple things. So one, uh, as always, you just have the best charts. Uh, I mean, this is this is really the crux of, of everything we should be focused on right now. Look, we're, we're in a massive global debt bubble. And we'll come back to your comment about, you know, the U.S. looks good. Mm. Looks can be deceiving. Um but, but China has incredible, has had incredible credit creation over the past couple decades, you know, really just exceeding anything we've ever seen before. Now, that is normal for ascendant superpowers, right? Mm -hmm. We saw it in Korea. We saw it in Japan. We've actually seen it in the U.S. And you know, someone was quipping maybe even uh, to another post that you made earlier this week that, that maybe this is China's 2008 moment, 
Yep. No, 2008 was China's 2008 moment. They <laughs> bailed out the world. They're the ones that put $4 trillion into the global economy to save everything. And and you can see the little you know blip, the COVID blip, um, and this is looking as bad as that. Uh, and I think it is in certain sectors. Look, the Evergrande story, the equity of Evergrande is worthless, right? It is going to zero. The rumor now is that bondholders are going to get 25 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. It's probably what they deserve. And they're going to have to unwind a lot of uh, bad debt, I guess. I mean, it was, it was never good debt to begin with. So to call it bad debt now is kind of funny, right? It, it was never a good idea. It was always uh, basically handouts to the super rich part of the Politburo, the senators. And, and now, and, and this cycle happens, right? In 2005, this happened. Uh, they had to bail out the banks, uh, just like we bailed our banks out in 2009. And I'm not sure it'll go that far this time. It, it might, mm-hmm. it might. But look, China has plenty of reserves. They have plenty of foreign currency reserves. They have plenty of weapons. And, and most of all, they just have plenty of assets. So everybody talks about debt in the absence of assets. It's like talking about money with the absence of the conversation of debt. And we talked about this up in New York is mm-hmm. there is only one money in the world, gold, right? Because money is something that exists in the absence of a liability. Everything else are just debt certificates. They, they are basically currencies, paper currencies that are the other side of, of government debt. And that doesn't make them bad or evil, but they're not true money. Money mm-hmm. has to have no associated liability. And so everybody talks about China in the absence of assets. They're like, oh, they have so much debt. Well, they have lots of assets. Remember, because of the way the command and control economy works, about 40% of the uh, debt is covered by assets because the state owns the banks and it owns the SOEs. Mm-hmm. So literally, they can cancel about 40% of these these bad debts so it's not as dire as it seems but it's certainly something that, it, that could could to your, to your very astute point have contagion effects and other countries are not as well off yeah uh, in terms of their ability to weather any sort of storm i mean we are balanced on a razor's edge price to perfection everywhere in the world the reason that blue line looks as low as it does is because you know, people are stupid. I mean, literally, people are stupid in the sense of, and I don't mean people like that are watching this this show. I mean, people who are investing in high yield bond funds that are buying bonds without high yield. Yeah. And you're taking huge credit risks at the end of an economic expansion cycle, maybe even the beginning of, of the correction cycle. Um, so anyway. That's a long answer, isn't it? I got to get better at that. No, 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 no. It was, it was great. I mean, honestly, I guess the flip side of, of me saying uh, the U.S. looks good is right. If you look at um, the yield that you're getting on uh, U.S. Uh, you know, corporate debt, um, that the flip side of that is the first chart that we kicked it off with last week, which is the percentage of U.S. corporate debt that's in negative uh, real yields, and it's you know it's spiking to something that's like eighty five percent. It's completely nuts. And you know, as, as guys like Greg Foss like to point out, right. Um, Debt, uh, you know, the, the debt and equity markets are linked, right? And debt is actually something that's senior on the capital structure. So when you're looking at yields uh, blow out like this, there should be a response uh, in the equity market, which is what you're seeing. Um, you know, 
I, I, I guess when I kind of look historically here, it makes sense. Uh, like the U.S. U.S. and China kind of move in tandem. Uh, I guess there's a little bit more credit risk on China, which is kind of what you'd expect in a more levered economy. Maybe something that's a little bit less uh, of a sure thing than the U.S. Um, I guess my question to you is, do you see this? Uh, I mean, China's just such an interesting thing. And Evergrande is more of a manifestation, uh, manifestation of the intense disagreement that goes on around China. Because you have some folks that are saying this is China's Lehman moment, 2008 moment, yeah. right? And then you've got folks yeah. who are saying, look, this is going to, this is not actually that big of a deal. It's, it's already looking like it's contained to the, uh, to the real estate sector. It's certainly contained to China. Folks are overreacting. Um, I feel like you're maybe more in that camp, but like, where do you kind of sit on, on just how to interpret this in general? Totally in that camp. Yeah. Totally in that camp. And you know, look, do I think that a whole bunch of over leveraged property companies, Mm-hmm are going to see their equity wiped out? Absolutely. People people want patterns to exist. Yep. Right? We all do this, right? We see something happen and we say, oh, look, that's a trend. <laughs> Not enough data to, to form the trend. Yep. And so people will say, oh, well, look at all these property developers going down. Oh, look at Tencent and, and Alibaba. They went down. Oh, see, that's contagion. No, they're, they're totally, not totally unrelated, but they are they are unrelated in the sense that the reason the tech stocks have gotten pummeled, and we talked a little bit about this the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. I believe, is a little bit of the, the China playing go. You know, Chinese venture capitalists started these, these companies. Um, over time, they sold their interest to U.S. investors, by and large. Um, people like the big mutual fund companies and the big hedge funds and, and pension funds. And then we start throwing rocks about trade barriers and, and uh, oh, we're going to delist your VIEs. And, and uh, again, maybe this isn't true, but it could be true that China's like, all right, mm-hmm. well, we'll just start wiping out some equity that you guys own. And we'll see how you like that. And then maybe you'll put a little pressure. And we saw an interesting thing, right? Soros, you, you put up the thing from Soros last mm-hmm. time that – you know, he says what BlackRock is doing is is unethical and immoral and, and bad because they're supporting China. And well, no, it's in their best interest mm-hmm. because they want all those assets to charge fees on, just like they've done in the United States for the last 30 years. So I I do think that the banks will need some help on this. Uh, I think they'll get it uh, just like they did in 05. And uh, I, I don't think this will lead to any, you know, big, massive problem unless some other countries around the world that have similar, uh, how shall we say, bubbles, uh, someone wakes up and says, oh, wait, that company has no clothes, right? That mm-hmm. company doesn't make money, will never make money, Tesla, will never have a chance of being profitable, Tesla. And probably shouldn't be worth hundreds of billions of dollars, Tesla. And anyway, so. So I've got I've got two questions here. I want to dig into what you just said about China. And then I've got actually a, a Tesla theory that I want to run by you. But, um, you know, one thing that I think is worth pointing out is that, you know, there's no Shangri-La when it comes to governance. I happen to be on the side oh, of. Well played on Shangri-La with. You know, Shangri-La being the great place to stay in, in China. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm going on. Multi- I'm working on multiple levels here. Um, 
But, you know, like the U.S., you know, our kind of business model is we, we believe in free markets. We believe in capitalism. We want to foster innovation. And, and we generally kind of want the market to work through a lot of our problems. China is a centrally planned economy, which is what makes control so critical there. And, uh, you know, there's kind of the dystopian way of looking at that, which is this, you know, uh, you know, autocratic kind of government. But then there's also the way of saying, like, they feel like it's their jurisdiction to do what's best for the people. And if you look at a lot of the problems that like just look at how the U.S. handled the pandemic uh, and equity holders over here versus what China is doing now. So we bailed out equity holders, right? When uh, when we, we bailed out equity holders in airlines um, and a whole bunch of other sectors. And there's like a question as to whether or not. I mean, there was a lot of uh, criticism of that when it was happening. And now China's almost doing it the opposite. It should be more. Yeah. Let, 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 and they're like, you're not in control here, right? Like, no, no, no. Let's totally flip it upside down, right? Americans, I would say, I said at the, the conference, right? Mm -hmm. American exceptionalism is, you know, Americans are like Notre Dame football fans. They remember a past that never was. We think we're perfect and everybody else is, is wrong. And oh, China's evil. Hmm, let's think about this. China, okay, and she in particular, believe that they have the mandate from heaven, right? That they are supposed to be the global superpower. She believes that. And he's bringing it back through Confucianism that uh, for 1800 of the last 2000 years, China was number one. 1800 of 2000 years, China was number one. And then there was this little ascendant thing and the UK took a piece of uh, the time and, and we've had the, you know, the first hundred and then we've had the second hundred. And you know, we look at China and say, oh, you know, they're, they're doing all this bad stuff. And like, well, let's think about this. Which country favors entrepreneurship and innovation more, the United States or China? I'll argue China. People will say, oh, no, that's not true. Interesting. Yeah, it is. They support innovation. Now, there is a point at which the concentration of the wealth gets to such a point where they say, nope, now we're going to redistribute. We're going to collect and redistribute in the best interest of the people. Mm -hmm. We do the opposite here, right? We just keep concentrating the wealth in the few. 2009, a bunch of people should have gone to jail for what they did on Wall Street and at the big banks. Should have gone to jail. They shouldn't have got a bailout. You're kidding yeah. me? Oh, they're too big to fail. Oh, the no. Companies fail all the time in the normal real world in capitalism, but we don't have capitalism in America. We have cronyism, and we have the worst form of cronyism. We have cronyism driven by political gerrymandering and payola now we call it lobbying doesn't that sound nice lobbying <laughs> that's sound not bribery that's not nice. corruption of course it is so i i and people don't like when i talk about this but i i actually think china is far more interested in innovation they're leading in innovation in all the more important technologies 5g um ai uh, machine learning and because of that they have these 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 road bumps along the way where they're they're migrating from the old world this state-owned enterprise model to the new world and that is going to cause some pain right 40 percent of the companies used to be state-owned enterprises and those yeah. now like the old coal companies now have to go away and the new energy companies there have been huge fortunes made in new energy where do you think we get all our solar panels for this green revolution we're going through yeah so 
anyway, again, long answer. No, I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I think um, there's a lot of really good arguments to be made pro and con. I, um, when it comes to crypto, I have deep conviction. When I'm looking at the situation in China, there are really smart people that I see on both sides of the fence, and I just don't have the conviction as, to come down really hard on one side or the other. I do, before we move on, though, I want to dig into your Tesla comment because I, I was talking about this uh, with my friend actually like last night. I've got two questions for you. One, sure. do you think if SpaceX went public, would it be worth more or less than Tesla? And two, if ESG continues to be a big trend, which it feels like we're just you know at the very beginning of, of that trend in general, the knock against Tesla and that it's never going to be uh, profitable is that, well, they only rely on selling carbon credits. But if there's more and more of an emphasis on ESG, that's actually starting to look like a not terrible strategy, you know, for Tesla if, if they have access to that and they were kind of there early. So I guess like first part of the question, what do you think about SpaceX and, and how valuable that would be if it IPO'd? Look, um, not exaggerating. Hmm. Once a week, we get people saying, please get me exposure to SpaceX. <laughs> yeah. And we've done a number of SPVs where we have gladly gone out and sourced shares to to sell to these people. I wouldn't put my own money in it. Mm. Right. And I didn't come up with the idea. So I feel OK about that. Normally, anytime we do a fund or an SPV, I'm the first investor, literally the first check in. And my team, we all invest. When someone comes to me and says, I want to buy an egregiously overvalued company because it's sexy. I'm like, love you. We'll, we'll go find it for you. Um, I think people who invest at, at, at these valuations in a company like SpaceX or Tesla are, are fools. I think they're greater fools. And to your question of whether it'd be worth more or less, unfortunately, it'd probably be worth more because people people love escapism, right? Mm. We love movies, we love fanciful stories, we love long walks and you know in in fancy you know in in, in great places. Mark, this sounds we like you're writing escape. a dating profile for yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this is so funny. Uh, if you like pina coladas, um, but uh, look, the reality is all of these things are interrelated, right? Why do we have a defined contribution structure that's dominated by mutual funds? Why do we have so much index and passive money? Well, it's because passive index money, right, which is a momentum strategy, which buys based on market cap, not on value, pushes money into fewer and fewer things and creates this massive Ponzi. Mm -hmm. So now we have companies that are valued at, at orders of magnitude above any logical uh, level. And in the old days, right, back when I didn't have white hair, we actually had people like Julian Robertson and Michael Steinhardt, and George Soros, who would then short these companies and make lots of money for their investors. Mm -hmm. But now we have the pack of jackals who go out and try to defeat the shorts. Yeah. I'm like, well, no, shorting is what keeps balance. And it's, it's like we bail out companies and we don't let them fail. We give people free stuff and expect, and, and then we're surprised that they don't want to work. Mm -hmm. Right. We are we are moving into this society where we're we're pumping up stuff. And let's take the, this, the carbon credits. How do you think the whole carbon credit thing happened? Right. Well, it's called lobbying. So a company that might manufacture something that could claim to be uh, carbon beneficial uh, 
And we don't even want to get started on the whole fact that you know, there have been multiple times in the history of the world where we've had higher temperatures and we're probably in a global cooling phase now with the grand solar minimum we just had, which is why the pandemic started and all this other stuff, which you don't want to open that Pandora's box. Mm. But solar activity ebbs and flows. And so, yes, I mean, I watched yesterday Onderon, uh, Pierre Onderon, who's a brilliant investor, mm. mostly in oil and gas. Now their whole firm is shifting to focus on the carbon market because the EU has legislated, this is crazy, legislated that within 30 years, the EU has to be carbon neutral. What does that mean? Are they going to stop polluting the air by building cars in Germany? No. Are they going to stop flying private planes across yeah. you know, to Davos? Oh, no. No, they're going to buy these, these credits that make you feel good that someone somewhere has figured out a way to sequester a little bit of carbon in a in an old salt mine. No. So I I do actually feel really strongly about this, that it's all a game. And it's a game that's driven by the wealthy who control politicians. And it's like this whole Met Gala thing, right? How does a politician go to one of those? Well, they have to be given a ticket. If you're given a $33,000 ticket, you probably owe that person a favor. If it costs $100 million to become a senator, most people don't have a hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. So you probably feel beholden to people to pass legislation. And then my favorite was when they asked, when they asked uh, the speaker many years ago, so do you think it's okay that you're holding up legislation that would harm visa, even though your husband is a major holder of visa? She goes, oh, absolutely. That's part of my compensation. Mm. Oh, mind blown. Insider yeah. trading is part of your compensation. <laughs> Okay, the rest of us go to jail for that. But I think I think SpaceX and Tesla are story stocks. They're hope stocks. They're mm -hmm. dream stocks. Mm -hmm. The companies are, are perfectly good, right? Mm -hmm. Tesla's a perfectly fine car. I will never have one because when I get in it, I get sick, right? I just, whatever, my body can't handle the, the sudden acceleration. Plus, the other thing is, I, I love this part. Everybody talks about, oh, you can go zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds. Mm -hmm. Tell me when you can use that feature. But I, you know, I actually don't really think it's about that because what, uh, so there's a really great podcast on this. It's hosted by Grant Williams, a big fan of everything that Grant does. Uh, Grant's and he, awesome. And he brings on a guy named Tesla Charts and they kind of go through the whole bear case of Tesla. And, um, you know, one thing that I think they're missing, the whole reason why there's like ludicrous mode and the answer is you never use that, but it's cool. And like, you got to give Elon Musk credit that, I, 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 look, I don't own any Tesla. I also wouldn't buy it. I just can't. I can't buy NFTs. I can't buy Tesla. I'm confined to the middle of the bell curve, you know. But, um, <laughs> you know, but like, where you I, make a lot of money? Yeah, you know, I mean, but you know, I do think what he did is he made electric cars cool, and I think you could trace a lot 100%. of the. Uh, I, I think you could trace a lot of that back to him, and he kind of single-handedly jump-started the industry. But I actually, I just want to close it out on, no, on Evergrande here to get your to get your kind of closing opinion and we'll move on to some other stories. So you're looking at the Hang Seng uh, Properties Index here, which is dipping. You're looking at, I mean, you know, Bloomberg put out this chart about developing contagion, you know, where you're kind of tracking uh, declines in, in Evergrande's rivals. And we've, we've got it on the chart here. Uh, I know, Mark, that, that you think uh, we're, we're probably limited in the amount of contagion that's going to seep out from this. What would make you change your mind? Anything that you'd pay attention to that you'd make you say, Hmm. Actually, maybe this is a bigger deal than I thought. Great. So I think if you overlaid your great chart from mm -hmm. I think two weeks ago mm -hmm. on the the M two global uh -huh. M two, 
uh, and you look at it relative to the chart on the left here, mm -hmm. perfect match, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, absolute perfect match. So yep. when you expand money supply, property prices rise. When you contract money supply, property prices fall. Mm -hmm. And that's something that China's done a masterful job mm -hmm. over the years. If you look at their credit impulse over time, they expand the credit impulse to get wealth circulating, property right. prices rise. And when they get too ebullient, they constrain. And historically, they've been able to avoid what's happening on the right, which is the total meltdown of, of the property companies. But this time, the companies just, after an accumulation of debt, an accumulation of, of mediocre uh, loans, you know, they're, they're, they're going to have to extinguish some equity. Um, now, again, if you want to go back to my other, although it's, I, I hate the term conspiracy theory because, you know, the, the CIA is the one that created that term to basically <laughs> yeah. discredit anybody that questions the truth. Hey, and I'm so, a big believer in aliens, so you don't have to talk to yeah, me exactly. about that conspiracy theory. I mean, theories. come on. Yeah. And, and look, anytime anyone says, oh, it's a conspiracy theory, well, then I know I'm, I'm, I'm hitting on, on, a, on a nerve around the truth. And... If you got to think of who are the biggest owners mm -hmm. of these stocks and who is really getting hurt. And do they think that by hurting big global investors, can they get them to, you know, quiet down this nonsense around around the trade wars? But but regardless, uh, there are problems in in China, so to speak, uh, uh, big problems in little China. And, and I do think that a number of these equities will get extinguished and then they'll start over. The thing that would make me change my mind is if, if the global M2 really started to collapse beyond China, right? Mm -hmm. I know China's credit impulse has, has been going down since uh, April. If the US really does taper, which I actually don't think they will, if the EU, you know, decides to stop printing euros which you know they've been promising to do now for years right but but i don't think any of that's going to happen because it's the same thing that japan said in 2007 2007 japan said they would stop doing qqe they're still doing it and we are 14 years later so you know it's the and i love this you know every time the guard does i do the the shakespeare was right um, you know, methinks the lady doth protest too much <laughs> or the lady doth protest too much, methinks. Yeah, um, I totally agree. And the one thing I would also uh, just add to that as well is um, I think the one like there have been two kind of black swan events, right, that have been listed this year or something to watch out for. There's Taiwan, which has honestly kind of been in everyone's yeah. crosshairs for a long period of time. But the other thing that I would say um, is if things get bad enough uh, in China is another uh, devaluation uh, of the RMB. Uh, I think that could I would throw a wrench uh, in a lot of folks' um, uh, macro plan for the year. So I, I don't know if this is large enough to cause that, but I would watch for that. Yeah, and, and, and that's another one Look, where, where I think they, they masterfully control the RMB right. as an offset for all the tariff nonsense, right? I mean, you know, it's so amazing, right? You, you can, it, it's, it's like the old picture of you got the guys painting the fence and then you guys got sandblasting the fence and it's just the, the fence never changes color. Yeah. And the same thing here is, is you can throw as many tariffs as you want, but if they devalue the, the renminbi, then it doesn't matter. And mm -hmm. if you look at the renminbi relative to other assets in the world, it's actually been stronger. 
Mm-hmm. So this whole thing of labeling them currency manipulators is kind of silly. We're the currency manipulator. We are the master currency manipulator. We are devaluing our currency. The Europeans are devaluing their currency. The Japanese are de. All of us are in a race to the bottom. And I actually don't worry about the renminbi at all. I think there's a reason that Chinese interest rates, despite the blowout, you know, actually, well, now with increasing, uh, with the blowout in yields, you know, Chinese government bonds are still one of the best buys of government bonds on the planet. And you, I think you saw one of the big, I've been talking about this for years, and I saw one of the big banks maybe two weeks ago said, oh, yeah, you should buy Chinese bonds. Yeah, because they actually have yield, and those yields are going to go to zero along with everybody else's, and you make a lot of money. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. I still keep the vast majority of my assets there, actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, everything is top of the line on this platform. And it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. Howdy, everyone. If you're a long-term investor in Ethereum, then listen up because I am talking directly to you here. If you've been listening to the show for the last two months, then you know that I am a big, big fan of ETH and the entire world of DeFi that's being built on top of it. It's honestly just super, super interesting, but it's also probably the single greatest wealth creation opportunity that I am ever going to see in my entire life. And the best thing about ETH is that you can hold it, but with this new upgrade to 2.0, you can also stake it and earn yield that way. The only problem is under the current set of rules, unless you have 32 ETH or at today's price is almost $100,000 then you can't stake it. Until now. Our good friends over at Matrixport just unrolled a solution which allows investors with as few as 5 ETH to start staking today. At the time of this recording, you can earn up to 9% APY, although that's going to vary based on the protocol. So stop what you're doing. Stop listening to me. Go click the link at the bottom of this episode. If it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or whatever it is, click that link, go over to the website, and tell them that I sent you. All right, give me a little credit, but definitely go click the link, start learning about how you can stake your ETH and earn yield or other yield generation opportunities. So I do, we've got two more charts that I want to make sure we cover, uh, you know, relatively quickly. I saw you retweeted this one. This was how you got on my radar. I just love, uh, I'm a big nerd for history, right? So like, I like any data that goes back, uh, you know, a long period in time. This goes back 800 years uh, and it's kind of tracking periods of, uh, inflation and it and it tracks it over the the long shaded gray areas are when fiat currency is essentially um, you, you know at the fore right of of money and what you can pretty clearly see here uh, you know which always be careful correlation doesn't equal causation but during periods of fiat supremacy I mean it's inflation right it's the it's 
what every Bitcoiner, every gold bug, every, every person in crypto has kind of pointed out. But I mean, this chart just really shows it in, in sharp relief. No, this this years might be the most important chart of any chart anyone can look at. And look, yeah. I'm, I'm prone to hyperbole, but that's actually not a hyperbolic statement. Mm -hmm. This this chart and the thing about it, it's it's one of the few charts that isn't a heinous chart crime. Most people, when they put up a long term chart and when I say long term, I mean anything over even five years, but 10 years for sure. Anything mm -hmm. over 10 years, everyone shows these big hockey stick charts. It's yeah. a useless chart. It's a total chart crime. You must use log scale. This, so we're talking 800 years, you must use log scale. And there is a clear, there is a clear inflection mm -hmm. in period from, you know, 1200 to yeah. 1800. I'm sorry, 1900. And then Hmm, what happened in 1913? I just don't recall <laughs> what that was. There was, there was it's like on Jekyll Island. Yeah. Jekyll Island, that's yeah, it, this yeah. monster. <laughs> and and then you get the the really unleashing of the Kraken. Uh not advertising Kraken, although I like those guys, and Jesse's a good too. guy. Mm -hmm. Um but uh in nineteen seventy one we unleashed the Kraken mm -hmm. and Nixon in his infinite not wisdom, uh, cut a deal with the Saudis. And we said, we will protect you at all costs, irregardless of what your citizens do. We will protect you at all costs in exchange for pricing global oil transactions in dollars. And that's why the dollar is the dominant, you know, global trading pair. It is why today it is still uh, the world reserve currency, at least for now. And that is fading, right? And, you know, in the olden days, if you challenged it, right, if you were Saddam Hussein, you said, nope, not going to do dollars, I'm going to do euros. Hmm, Saddam disappeared. And then Qaddafi, oh, I'm going to do gold. He disappeared. So those days are gone. Now it's, well, you know what? We're not even going to talk to you guys. And we're just going to do the contracts in local currency. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Africa and China, their contracts don't go through dollars anymore. They go direct. Now, that's an interesting play, too, is that I think you showed the chart uh, a couple weeks ago. That's one of the great land grabs in history, right? You lend people money, yeah. you know they can't pay you back, and so you take the collateral, and then you own these strategic assets around the world. Genius. So, um, in fact, it's, one, it's the one thing I do worry about, I think we talked about this in, in Bitcoin, right, is... If you give people a hundred times leverage, are you doing that because you want to encourage degenerate gambling or are you a bad actor and you're doing it so that you can take the collateral and accumulate a bigger share for yourself? That's, that's a question we'll talk about some other time. But this chart, why this chart is so incredibly important is it, it points out you know, hashtag fiat fiasco. Mm -hmm. Fiat, right? Money, I shouldn't say money, currency, because it's not money, currency that can be created at a whim by fiat, by decree, with no justification or rationalization, but just simply because some group of pale, stale male guys want to do it. And I guess it's not just white. I mean, mm -hmm. there are other colors in other parts of the world, mm -hmm. but it's always this group of guys that get in a room and quietly decide these things and you can see the impact right i mean i 
coming home from from your event, uh, I went you know out to LaGuardia, which took an hour and a half because I forgot that it was Yom Kippur, and so that was a big traffic night. And uh, long story short, I go to Pat Lafrida's, which is one of my favorite hamburgers. Shake Shack is better, but but Pat Lafrida's hamburgers are awesome. And you know, I bought that hamburger for the last fifteen years. Six dollars, eight dollars, twelve dollars. The other night, twenty-one dollars. Yeah. For a single cheeseburger without fries, twenty-one dollars. That's yeah. insane. That is insane, and that is why the poor and middle class are are less well off than before we started all this QE crap, and the rich are way better off because yeah. all the assets that are helped by the erosion of purchasing power of these assets is are going up and yeah. and look they're about to go up again right they said jeff is going to buy a sports franchise he's going to overpay just like balmer did and he's going to drive the price up of this very scarce asset right there are only so many pro sports franchises and if you have money that is meaningless to you meaning you have so much of it that doesn't really have value. It's one of the problems I actually see in the NFT space. I was going to make the same comparison, actually. Yeah. yeah. I, well, no, yeah. I mean, you have people who who put in $5 or whatever, $1,000 into ETH when it was nothing. Now it's, you know, up 3,500 times, actually more than that. I mean, you know, 10,000 times. And so you got this, oh, I got rich. Well, if I'm rich, I can buy anything I want. Well, I, I want that. Well, if five people want the same little JPEG, then, oh, 150 ETH, that's nothing. 150, I got thousands of ETH. No, 150 ETH is half a million dollars. I know. Idiot. I know. Half a million dollars for a JPEG. It's not that that's wrong per se. It's just that there's no, there's no thought of the absolute value when you become desensitized to it because you have so many of them. And and that, that look, that is that is super high-end art, that is super high-end real estate. I mean, go to Aspen sometime and look at the nonsense. I mean, crappy houses that are tilting one way and, you know, five, six million dollars. Yeah. Well, I do it because I can. Well, that's stupid. So I would just add a couple points to this. So just closing the loop on this chart here. Uh, one thing, so usually looking back in history, it makes me feel better. This chart uh, actually doesn't really, because uh, if, if you look at a lot of the times that that precede uh, these, these periods of uh, inflation and, and fiat dominance, it tends to be a crisis more often than not a war, right? There's the American Revolutionary War, uh, you know, there's the, the French Revolution, World War II, uh, you know, not great stuff. But to, to your point about, and then maybe we can transition into kind of the crypto digital asset side of things like, yeah, I, you know, if you look back at 2017, one of the things that event, the, the mechanisms that eventually caused the sell off is uh, back then it was a bunch of ICOs uh, and they were raising yeah. funds in Bitcoin and ETH. And eventually after the fundraising is done, denominated in, in something like ETH, then the, the treasuries of those ICOs were ETH and Bitcoin, and then eventually you have bills to pay. So there was almost like a forced selling period after that, which is what, I mean, there's always going to be a blow off top, but that was kind of the mechanism that set in. Yep. And I think, yeah, that, that analogy of just not valuing the dollar or the denominator, 
Yeah, I think NFTs right now, I, I'm just going to go on record. I'm a huge believer in, in NFTs long term. But when huge you just believer. look at the huge valuations believer. now, I mean, they just, yeah, it's just really hard for me to get my head around. But this, I, I really want to get your opinion on, on this chart here. Uh, we talked about this on stage at the event as well, uh, not chart crime, because uh, it's a log scale. And this comes, uh, shout out to Raul, uh, who writes uh, Global Macro Investor. Um, and, and he's tracing the adoption curve of the internet um, in the years 1992 to 2006 uh, to total crypto users. And the big takeaway here is two things for me. One, crypto adoption and users is actually growing at a rate that's faster than the internet. And in a certain level, you don't really need to know much more than that to understand what's going on in this industry. But even if you adjust at a certain point, the growth levels off, which it inevitably does. These are huge numbers. We're t what he says is, uh, you know, this chart, which has some pretty uh, conservative assumptions, in my opinion, is 3.7 billion users, you know, by the time we hit uh, 2030, I think is the bottom of the chart. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, to me, this, I mean, I looked at this and I was like, wow, this, uh, it's a bit of a light. No, look, uh, so here's the thing. This was, you know, my aha moment mm -hmm. was when I realized that this is a technological evolution. We've talked about it, you know, over and over and people are sick of me talking about it. But it it is. I mean, we are in 1997. And in 1996, right, we put a little bit of money into Google and it turned into a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And then in 1998, we put a little bit of money into um, uh, Sienna and it turned into a bunch of money. And then we put a little bit of money into, you know, Sycamore Networks. And all of these things were the technological evolution that that became the Internet, right? In 1996 and 97, people weren't even sure what the Internet was. And people were saying, oh, it's a passing fad. and Oh, it'll never be more important than the fax machine. No, it fundamentally changed everything, right? Mm. It made information ubiquitous. It was as important, perhaps more important than the printing press. And I think you're you know, going to talk about it, right? We, we busted the church's monopoly with the printing press, and now we busted corporate uh, and government control with the internet. Now what, what cryptographic security does is it now allows us to change the exchange of value. And, and this is so profound in that what the internet did to the media industry and the commerce industry is big, mm -hmm. right? It's big. But the financial services industry is bigger by orders of magnitude, right? Stock market's big. Bond market's orders of magnitude bigger. Currency market, orders of magnitude bigger. Derivatives market, orders of magnitude bigger. Mm -hmm. It is an exponential curve. And if you flip this curve, if you flip this chart upside down, it makes the beginnings of a very cool parabolic chart for the internet. If you just wrap your head around this, is Web 1.0 is the flat part of the curve on the left parallel to the x-axis. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of wealth created in Cisco and Microsoft and <laughs> yeah. Intel. Great. Web 2, right, post, now this thing, post the bust, right? We talked about this up in New York is the trust net, which is my name for all of this, which is the 
internet of trust or the internet of value, the trust net only gets started, right, in terms of its really big adoption and its really big upside after the bust. Mm -hmm. So 96 to 00 was this amazing period to invest in Yahoo and eBay and Google and you're awesome. But then four years later, we had the bust, right? We had the crash. Mm -hmm. And so the crash happened and then Web2 comes along and Amazon and Netflix and Alibaba, way more wealth. And that's yeah. the knee of the curve. Now Web3, okay, from 20, uh, 2020 to 2024, so 2019 to 2024, there's going to be this incredible period of building and investing. And we've seen it in companies like Coinbase and Kraken and Gemini and, and the basic infrastructure and, and De the beginnings of DeFi and, and all these things are happening. But then we're going to have this, this semi-peak in 2024 and we're going to have a bust. But from that bust, we're going to have the expansion, the, the, the total exponential expansion as we go up that curve in adoption. And look, I, I participated in this thing, the Coins podcast, right? I think it's a really cool documentary on the history of Bitcoin. And, yeah. and we did it for the next billion, right? We're trying to educate the next billion to join us, 200 million. I was so funny. Like we have... 200 million users of crypto, right? Plus or minus 50 million. I've heard 150 million. I've heard 250 million. So within yeah. 50 million, we know exactly right. how many crypto users right. there. But that number is going to be a billion. Then it's going to be two. Then it's going to be three. Then it's going to be five. And ultimately, all of us every day will use this technology, but it'll be invisible. The same way that I'm talking to you now using TCP IP. I have no idea how it works. I don't really care. Yeah. I just know that we can talk real time with video and then we can save it and then we can share it and then we can educate. And I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. You know, I got to share. Uh, so I, I actually, I recorded this at Jim Bialco's the interview that's coming out uh, next week. And I talked about this with him, but I had this like visceral experience, um, you know, because we just did this conference, the Digital Asset Summit this week. I, it's kind of like a trip down memory lane. I remember last ones, we, we've been hosting them for like four years. And, you know, I can just remember getting into crypto myself, uh, you know, a number of years ago, and I would meet these people at conferences. And, you know, I, I talked to, there's kind of two groups. There were like the people who'd been in for a long time, and I kind of viewed them as being pretty radical at the time. And I was like, well, I don't, I'm not yeah. so sure about all that. And then I would talk to these people from finance who were like, yeah, some of this makes sense, but we want to like tokenize assets and do all this stuff that I was like, okay, I get that. And, you know, back in 2017, we don't have, we didn't have the same user growth. Stuff didn't work. Bitcoin is really like the only thing. And it was kind of clear that we were in a bubble. Like we all knew it at the time. And I think yeah. in my head, I thought that the finance people would come around if, if it ever came back, right? And now it's coming back. Stuff is working. You know, I mean, prices are up, but users are up. Like every indication, every bit of evidence that you could possibly want is there. And they still aren't buying in. And I'm like, what is, Yeah. like, what more evidence do you need? And I kind of, you know. Well, it's I, the curse of incumbency. Yeah. It's the curse of incumbency. Incumbents' livelihood depends on not understanding yeah. disruptive technology. Right? And if your livelihood depends on you not understanding something, you will not understand it. Now, you really do understand it, and you're really afraid of it, and you really are going to poo-poo it, right? It's it's the FUD, you know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt on 
ESG concerns. Silly, right? It's the FUD on criminal activity. Absolutely silly, right? Is more criminal activity done with sacks o money or fingers on a keyboard? It's not close. It's not close. It's sacks of money. So all of that is incumbents. And, and, and again, finance or finance, depending on where you live, uh, is the, the affected party this time. Whereas if you asked a television executive, right, about cable, mm-hmm. oh, those are bad people. They're <laughs> shady characters. And no, 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 over air is the only thing that matters. What if your cable got cut or what? Nope, cable one. If you ask the cable people about streaming, Whoa, shady characters. Oh, that internet, it's not reliable. It'll go down and you don't have this infrastructure and nope, streaming wins. Better technology will always win and it will always disrupt the incumbent and the incumbents will always fight back. And and to your point, people like me or, or Raul or Dan or Dan, you know, like sitting on stage with, you know, Again, two macro investing true legends, you know, guys I've backed in the past and, and allocated capital to and have gotten to know, you know, we sit there and we we all kind of looked at each other over the past eight years and said, yep, yep, it's real. And it's not just crypto kids. It's not just a bunch of tech geeks, you know, geeking out and, and doing some little project. This is fundamental change. This is fundamental evolution of technology there is zero probability it's going back in the bottle there is zero probability it will not dominate everything that we think about and everything that we do but that's hard it's hard it's right? really hard for the incumbents i know and and i feel badly you know we've talked a little bit about this right there are protocols out there that literally are going to displace all of the derivative industry mm-hmm. the whole thing all of it is going to end up in smart contracts on chain and that means a lot of people are going to lose jobs a lot of people are going to have to retrain a lot of people are going to have to you know think about how they approach the business and the smart ones and i say smart maybe in air quotes right are getting out early i mean, I mean getting ahead early because they're not smart because they're more intelligent they're mm-hmm. just they're taking the risk to to do something uncomfortable yeah and if you stay in your comfortable life and you and you pretend that that all oh, this isn't happening and you know, i'll use the ostrich right the ostrich sitting here and the lion comes out of the bush and the ostrich turns its back and lays its head on the ground he actually doesn't he or she doesn't bury it in the sand that's a wives tale it just literally lays its head on the ground but it turns its back to the lion well the lion still eats the ostrich the ostrich just doesn't see it happen. So you can turn your back on this and say, oh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to my industry. It's not going to happen to my company. It's not going to happen to my job. The tech is going to eat all of it. Mm-hmm. And software is eating the world. And it started with information, media, commerce. Now it's coming for finance. Yeah. And that's a good thing. right? The idea that we can eliminate by the WEF estimate, seven trillion dollars of middle person waste. Right? You're a bank. You make some loans. You securitize them. I want to buy some bank loans. It takes thirty days to settle. Mm-hmm. 
30 days? Are you kidding me? Why? Why do I have to wait 30 days? Mm -hmm. Right? Well, because there are seven systems, some written in COBOL and Fortran, which, you know, I, I think I told the funny thing about, you know, I was talking to the guys from Visa and they said, yeah, when our, when our mainframe breaks, we put on a red light at the Sunnyvale retirement <laughs> home and we get the 80 year olds to come over and fix our, our COBOL. And I mean, so that's, that's not a good system. Yeah. And provenance can settle in, in real time, and that that's going to happen. And so, you know, the cool thing about what you guys have done with Blockworks and, and with DAS is, is you took risk, mm -hmm. right? You left safe, comfortable job paths, and you said, we're going to go build, which is the thing we all should want to do is build things, in a space that we think has got legs, and that that's that's commendable and it's it's brave it's courageous but that's how everything great happens mm -hmm. is you you take risks but you take intelligent risks you're taking stupid risks like i don't get like bungee jumping i don't really get skydiving i don't really get i mean i get that it's a very low probability but the severity is bad mm -hmm. and so you know to me take risks that you get compensated for yeah that's the job of an investor. Well, what I would always say, and I appreciate those kind words, like one thing, maybe if, you, if you're listening to this and you aren't necessarily operating in this industry, one thing that's, that's less obvious uh, and always made me feel better is honestly, Mark, like what, when I first got into this industry, watching smart guys like you, what's less obvious is the human capital that's active in the space. And I, it, what always helped me get through, you know, when it was like Bitcoin might not be a thing and is anything else going to really work here was seeing other really smart people who were able to filter out that noise, invest, double down and build. And I feel like that's less obvious. And honestly, my, you know, I talked about when I first got into this space, I used to look at these radicals, in my opinion, these radicals, guys who'd been in it for a while. And they were like, look, this is going to disrupt everything. And I used to say, I, I don't really, uh, sorry, I don't, I don't really see, see that. Yeah. And now, look, I got to check my own emotion here, but I'm much more on that page than I've ever been because I've watched, you know, incumbents get every chance to, they could have stepped in. And I, and I think the Overton win, or the window of being able to buy uh, innovation on their part is closing. Like look at Co yeah. Coinbase, Coinbase, when they uh, IPO'd, they could have acquired CBOE for 10% equity dilution. I, and I get that this sounds radical, I know, but uh, you know, I think that if anything, it's going to be the crypto startups that are acquiring the incumbents for the licenses. Oh, 100%. More so than anything else. 100%. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we, we had this conversation about BlockFi yesterday. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's our biggest investment. And, and we had this conversation, right? That everybody's like, oh, well, you know, who's going to buy them? I'm like, well, it might go the other way. And, you know, there was a time. There was a time. There was a time. When a big incumbent could have said, yeah, you know what? We're going to bolt you in. But they didn't. Mm -hmm. And now... You got a business that, you know, is, you know, making the moat deeper and wider and putting some crocodiles in it, maybe. I mean, it's 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 a great business. And look, so many things we could talk about here and, and we will over the, the coming weeks. Uh, the thing I love about about doing this, we only do it for three weeks. But the thing yeah. I love about it is is the prep that you do is, is great because it narrows our focus, which I lack. I like to talk about everything, as you can see. Um, but I also love that we can that we can go down little rabbit holes and we can bring up topics that hopefully, as people watch, they're like, oh, and you do some work on that. So to your point about the talent migration, right? Only two times, and I'm old, right? I am old. 
only twice in my career have I seen the talent migration once in the 90s around the internet and it was awesome it was awesome and we made so much money for the universities that I worked for for our clients it was awesome this is bigger there's more talent and and you know I, I love sharing this story so the last time we were together in New York at DAS I did the the closing speech two years ago so we skipped and then you know did it this year and I finished my speech and, and I gave you know typical rambling USCO talk because um, you didn't you didn't let me use slides and you know we had the, punch, the, the, the boxing book and and I talked about this talent migration and follow the talent yeah, this, this young guy comes up to me afterwards says hey will you call my mom I'm like what he's like well, you know, my mom thinks I'm an idiot you know I left this big law firm I work for this crypto firm Will you call my mom? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we went out. We That's called his like mom. One of my favorite stories ever, Mark. That's and, such yeah, a cool no, story. And I, and I said, look, no, your son is really smart. This is a great opportunity, and I wish I could remember who it was that I had that that exchange with. But but it's it's true. I'm not. I'm just, look, you know, one thing. I may be hyperbolic, but I I, I speak the truth, and that was a that was a seminal event for me because it it solidified this whole when you make those decisions to do something that you believe in. Look, I always come back to my pin tweet. The greatest wealth is created by investing in something that you believe in before others understand. You'll be mocked, ridiculed, and you know chastised for your non-consensus mm. action. Mm -hmm. And for people listening, if you can spend at least a portion of your life, not all of your life, but a, a meaningful portion of your life, doing things that are non-consensus, doing things that, that, that they tell you is wrong, you'd probably be all right. Yeah. You know, I don't mean break rules to break rules, but do things that the conventional wisdom says are impossible. Imagine the, the unimaginable and focus on problems that seem unassailable because people are looking inside the box. And people say, oh, look outside the box. I'm like, no, 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 no. Think like there is no box. Go back to that beginner's mind. It's why I love have my, my little 10 year old, right? I mean, he asked me these amazing questions like every day. And when you're, when you're four, right? They say you ask 200 questions a day. By the time you're 40, you're down to four questions a day. There's more than four good questions. So yeah. ask lots and lots and lots of questions. And that's what this show is all about. It's about asking questions about commerce, about tech, about the future, and and we get to to hypothesize and, and have some fun so Which is thanks for fun. having me. yeah absolutely and i know uh so you get your mr mom of the year award here for picking up carpool and uh i know you yeah, apologize for the scrub you gave the uh, yeah but mark yeah i mean look someone called you a silver fox in the comments last week i think you're looking great uh yeah there's no need to worry so you are too kind i always have a, a face for radio but i appreciate that <laughs> said the same thing when tyler left someone was like uh Where'd the, where'd the pretty one go? I was like, well, well I'll just go on you know, myself. All right. Uh, I guess we have to do All right. This. Solidarity, brother. All right. Talk to you later, Mark. Thanks, man.